Today is the first Sunday of the Epiphany, and when I say that, I suspect I am really not stirring up your hearts. If I were to say today is Easter Day, that's exciting, and if I were to say this is Christmas Eve, well, you'd be excited, but somehow the first Sunday of Epiphany doesn't do it. But that represents the fact that we are 21st century Christians and not 1st, 2nd, 3rd, or 4th century Christians. Because in the ancient church, after Easter 1st and Pentecost 2nd, the third biggest feast, the most exciting feast, was the first Sunday of the Epiphany. Because it is the baptism of Jesus. Baptism of Jesus still today in the Eastern church is bigger than Christmas. It's a very special day. It's the beginning of the season of Epiphany. And what is the season of Epiphany? The season of Epiphany is sometimes as short as six weeks, sometimes as long as nine weeks. It's kind of an accordion season, depending when Easter shows up. But the purpose of the theme is to tell us what Jesus is like. Yes, the King is coming, that's Advent. Yes, King Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But now here we're in Epiphany, and we want to ask the question, so who is Jesus? What is he like? And that's the theme of this entire season. Every Sunday is given to a scriptural theme, unpacking who Jesus is. That's kind of a modern phrase, isn't it? Unpacking. An older word we might use is the word manifest. Uh, it's something which is latently inside a person, but it's going to be revealed and it becomes explicit out there where everybody can look at it. The very word epiphany means to manifest, or literally to show forth. Epi means forth, phanos means to manifest or to show. It's to show forth. And we've all had this experience. You, you meet somebody and they're a new friend. If you're dating them in high school and college, you may say, ooh, he's really cute or she's really fun. But you don't know what they're about, so you spend time with them, and you have events, and then there's one event along the way that suddenly you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Uh, I had a friend, a, a girl who was dating a fellow, and she thought, well, he's pretty cool, he's good, he comes from a good family, but you never know. So they dated, they were in a grocery store getting some soda pop so they could go on this picnic. They were leaving the store, here came a woman, she had three bags and was trying to manage a little toddler, and he turned and gave his girlfriend the, the drink and he said to the woman, he said, you look like you have your hands full, can I help you carry a couple of those bags and just get you to the car safely? And she thought, whoa. This one's a keeper. And what happened? In that story, in that little event, there was a showing forth. There was a manifestation. We're going to close this service singing a wonderful hymn, and four of the five verses begins manifest. Manifest at baptism. Manifest at the uh, wedding of Cain of Galilee. We'll be looking at that next week. Manifest on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the last Sunday of Epiphany. But it's a showing forth of who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to be doing. So put your safety belts on and prepare for the uh, six or nine week uh, travel manifesting who Jesus is. Now what is the manifestation of today? The celebration of the baptism. The celebration of the baptism 
looks at a variety of things, but the one I want to focus on are the words from heaven. Did you catch those words? You are my son, my beloved, my chosen. With you I am well pleased. That's a simple word from heaven. Scholars call words from heaven like this in Scripture a bath kol, bath like a bath, and kol, Q-O-L, and that means a voice. Bath means literally a daughter. Bathsheba is the daughter of the south. And so a bath kol is a daughter of a voice. We could say it's an echo of an echo. It's not so much an explicit loudspeaker, you are my son, but it's a sense which is very suggestive. And what's interesting to me about this quotation is that God does not have an original word at the baptism. What he does is he quotes Psalm 2 and he quotes uh, Isaiah 42. The psalm quotation from Psalm 2 is, and, and we, we heard that in the Old Testament lesson which was read, uh, I'm sorry, we didn't hear it. The other one was. Uh, The quotation from Psalm 2 is a quotation which every Jew recognized was a messianic psalm. It's about King David. The world's a mess. We need somebody in charge to keep things straight. And David's the man who's going to do that. And so this psalm was famous. I mean, if I were to stand up here and to say to you in the sermon, uh, four score and seven years ago, you immediately think Gettysburg Address, founding of nation, meaning of nationhood. But when a Jew hears, you are my son, my begotten, they immediately think David, King David, and Christ, because the king would be the Christ, the one anointed to get things in order. So what's happening in this part of the quotation? What's happening here is God is affirming what Jesus already knows. You are the Christ. I think if we stop and think about it, Jesus already knew that. Not because he had an inside track theologically, but because you can be certain that Mary and Joseph told him along the way the stories of his baptism, about angels, about shepherds, about virgin birth. And we know that Jesus knew that because when he was 12, Luke tells us the story how he stayed back in the temple, Mary and Joseph come looking for him, and Jesus says, did you not know I must be about my father's business? Well, Joseph is standing there, but he's not talking about Father Joseph, he's talking about Father God. He knew that he was the Christ, the Messiah. But was that enough? I want to suggest to you that that knowledge by itself was not enough. And that's the second part of the quote. The second part of the quote is, and in one gospel, I think it's, I can't remember which gospel, it says, my chosen, my beloved, with you I am well pleased. But either way you play it, that's from the passage read from the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 42. What is Isaiah 42? Isaiah 42 is the first of five songs in the book of Isaiah called the Servant of the Lord Songs. The word there in Hebrew is the word Ebed Yahweh. Ebed is servant, Yahweh is the Lord. These are the Servant of the Lord Songs. There are five of these songs. And there's a quotation here. It's as though God is saying to Jesus at his baptism, and the Holy Spirit is coming down, anointing this teaching, yes, you are the Christ. You know that. 
But of course, Jesus would say, well, what's the Christ going to do? He's supposed to liberate Israel. Yes, but how am I going to do that? I mean, I'm the interim rector of All Saints Anglican Church. And I showed up and they gave me a key to my office. They told me where the bathroom was. And they seated me down in a chair. And then I asked myself the question, so what in the world am I supposed to be? I have the title, but I don't have the job description. I'm rector, but how am I going to be the rector? And that's what happens with Jesus. I'm the Christ, but how will I be the Christ? And the answer to that is the five servant of the Lord songs. Now, everybody knows who the Christ is. Because everybody loves David, and everybody feels we need somebody like David because the world's a mess, and we need someone to come in and fix it. We got those Philistines over there and the Amalekites over here, and oh my goodness, what happens if the Egyptians come or the Persians come and the Greeks have come before? Now the Romans are here. We need a Christ to fix it. You know, we talk about the Christ... But what's so interesting is that when we do so, we assume we know that the Christ is going to look at Jesus. But you go back in his time, they did not think that the Christ was going to look at Jesus. What did they think of when they thought of the Christ? And the answer is Rambo. We want someone to kick Roman rear in and get this country free. And everyone's going to jump up and say, well, I got a sword at home, and I got a brother-in-law, and he has a spear. Well, let's get together and drive those Romans out. All we need is somebody to organize and direct us. Ah, Christ Rambo is here to do the job. That's what they wanted. So what happens, you have the announcement that Jesus is the Christ, but then you have this announcement, this enigmatic figure called the servant of the Lord, and God in this quotation is splicing those two ideas together as if to say, you are the Christ, but you will be the Christ by being the servant of the Lord. Nobody had ever done that before. Isaiah was writing in the 7th century B.C., but for seven centuries, nobody suggested that the Christ and the servant of the Lord would be the same person, but with Jesus, they are the same person. It's an absolutely brilliant concept, and it gives us an epiphany, an insight, a manifestation into who Jesus is. Jesus is saying to himself, yes, I am to save Israel, but how am I going to save Israel? And the answer to that is, by being the servant of the Lord. I had a crazy week this week. Oh my gosh, you, you people don't pay me enough. Uh, I, I, I drove uh, nine hours back from Chattanooga. I got here. Two staff members are sick down with COVID, so I jumped in and did stuff. I got ready for Thursday night worship. That was busy. And then Friday and Saturday, I was busy with a pastoral crisis, non-parishioner, but nevertheless a pastoral crisis with a homeless person getting a home and buying groceries and getting some furniture, blah, 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 blah. And it was busy. And this woman I was working with was a difficult woman. I mean, I didn't know whether she was going to start crying or start yelling at the same time. It was a really odd situation. And I thought back to this passage from Isaiah 42. I think it's verse 3 there, if you have your notes in front of you. But it says, a bruised reed, we're talking about the servant of the Lord, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. Now what does that have to do with anything? 
What he's saying is that the servant of the Lord is so tender, pastorally, so gentle as a human interactor, that if you have a bent reed, he's not going to break it. And if you have a darning week, he's not going to quench it. Now, I appeal to people who are my age and older that I know that you remember when we went to uh, the pharmacy to get a soda pop or a milkshake, and they gave us paper straws, and there wasn't any wax on these straws. They were paper straws. And if it got bent, you were had. That was a worthless straw. It would break that easy. They had bent reed, they had reeds, but if the reed was bent, it would break that easy. But the servant of the Lord is so gentle that he doesn't break it. And there are people who are like the bent reed this woman was. And there's some people who are willing to give up altogether. They're dimly burning wick. I appeal to the acolytes and lay readers when we light candles in church. Sometimes the wick is so low and you're seeing, is that candle lit? I don't know. I think it's lit. No, I don't think it is lit. No, I'm pretty sure it is. Well, let's go up and look. And there's just the tiniest of a flame showing. And then maybe the air conditioner or the uh, heater comes on and there's just a little bit of a wind in the air and that's enough to put it out. But the servant of the Lord is pastorally so caring and tender that even a dimly burning wick, and I know people like that in my life, and so do you. Now, Rambo or David doesn't care about burning wicks. They're happy to trample all over those people, but the servant of the Lord cares for those people. It also said in this passage, he brings people out of prison, prisons where he brings them out of darkness. This isn't a physical prison, it's an emotional prison. A divorcee, an abused relationship, out of drug addiction, out of some oppression of some kind. He brings people out of those prisons. Rambo doesn't care. David doesn't care about that. His job is to put people into prison. But the servant of the Lord brings people out of prison. We have that passage where the disciples of John the Baptist, John's in prison, and the disciples come to Jesus and they say essentially, is you is or is you ain't my baby? Is you is the Messiah or is you not the Messiah? Now what they expect is an, a, a, a thumbs up, yes I am or no I'm not. That's what they expect, that's what they want. But they don't get that. Because if Jesus simply says that, nobody's made any progress. The problem isn't, yes, I'm the Messiah. The problem is, yes, I'm the Messiah, but you don't understand who the Messiah is and what he's going to be. You have the wrong job description for that. So what Jesus says instead is, am I the Messiah? You go back and tell John this, the blind see, the deaf hear, the, the lame walk, the poor have the good news preached to them. That's a straight quotation out of, of the fifth servant of the Lord's songs. And so what John disciples here, and what John hears is not simply, yes, he's the Christ, but he's the servant of the Lord. I want us to understand that because I want us to understand the nature of Jesus and that he came at life the same way we come to life, one day at a time. He didn't wake up with his marching plans all planned out. He had to say, here I am, and what's going to happen today, and how am I going to do that? But behind his thinking the whole time is, I'm the servant of the Lord. And whatever happens, that's how I'm going to approach things.
Now that's the truth about Jesus. And if that's all I say, I've not done enough because there's a second part to this. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. But if you look at those five songs in Isaiah, the scholars are asking this question, is the servant of the Lord an individual person, one person, or is the servant of the Lord a group of people? Is it all Israel? Is it the remnant of Israel that came back uh, from exile? Is it a group within Israel? Is it a bunch of disciples of maybe uh, the prophet Isaiah? Is it an individual or a group? Now, whatever the Old Testament people come up and thought that Isaiah thought, we Christians have the insight on identity because we know that Jesus of Nazareth is par excellence, the servant of the Lord. But we also are to understand that the community of Jesus, the community of the Christ, the little Christ, that's what the word Christian means, the little Christ, is also the servant of the Lord. The church is the community of the servant of the Lord. If you are baptized by virtue of your baptism, you are a servant of the Lord. And your job isn't to go out and be like Rambo and kick rear in. Your job is to be as gentle as the servant of the Lord, to give sight to the blind, to get people out of prison, to love people in their distress. You know, I've heard a lot of people complaining about what's going on in America, and I can complain about what's going on in America. I don't like it. But they come in and they say, Brad, did you hear the latest thing? This person said this, and they go off on the, you know, complaint about it, and I'm upset. But basically what they're saying is, the world is acting like the world. Well, of course they are. They're the world. We expect the world to act like the world. That doesn't distress me. What distresses me is not the world is acting like the world. What distresses me is the church is not acting like the church. And the church is the community of the servant of the Lord. And whatever the future holds for us as American Christians, be assured of this. The only way forward is for us to be servants of the Lord. Now, there's many reasons I am a Christian. There's many reasons my Christian faith is confirmed. But probably the primary one is I experience in the church people who have been the servant of the Lord to me. And that's made the difference. I want to give you some homework. When you go home and you have your waffles... I want you to share with the people at the dinner table some story from any period of your life of a servant of the Lord who made the difference to you. If you want to get out those five songs of Isaiah, you can do it, or you can just say, I know what servanthood is, and here it was in operation. And to help you, I'm going to give you a story from my own life. I was a youth minister when I was in college. I was fellow traveling with a Presbyterian church, and his name was Larry Sharpless. Now, you already know from his name, Larry Sharpless, is that he is, without being sharp, he was sharpless. He was a nerd. I mean, we, we knew he was a nerd for many reasons. One reason, he had hormone glasses in the 1960s. I mean, John Lennon never wore horn-ring glasses. We were all cool, but this guy had horn The second thing that identified him as a nerd was he wore white socks. In the 1970s, that was the kiss of death. He might as well have had a shirt that said, I'm a nerd, kick me. 
And he told the worst jokes. They were so painful to listen to his jokes. But he came into that church and he took a youth group of 12 kids. And in two years, he had over 65 kids meeting once a week for Bible study and song and worship and fellowship and service. And Larry loved us. I remember one time in, in a prayer group, we were praying for the prayer group, and there was one guy named Wayne who no longer was coming to youth group, wasn't going Sunday, wasn't going uh, Wednesday evening. And Larry started crying because Wayne wasn't there. Now, I was happy to pray for Wayne, but I wouldn't have thought to cry, but he loved Wayne so much, this bent reed, that he cried over his separation. But the big one for me came a summer when Larry had appointed me to be in charge of the youth group. Larry was very much into mentoring. There were six or seven of us involved in that six-year period when Larry was at church who went into professional youth ministry. Phil Buten, uh, Jim Martin, Ken Adrian, Brad Wilson, Fred Daniels, and about two or three others. Full-time youth ministry because of Larry. And he appointed me to be in charge of the youth group during the summer. It was only an hour and 15-minute program, but there was music. I played the guitar, and we all sang. I had a game that was fun. We sat usually outside on the grass. We had a teaching. Then we prayed, and it was a good hour-and-a-half youth time. And I was so honored to do this. And I'm very stoic in my sense of loyalty and commitment. So if I promise to do something, I'm going to do it. You can count on me. Brad will do it. But anyway, on this one occasion that I was supposed to do it was at the height of my mom's drinking. My mom was an alcoholic. My dad was going through a hard time because he was being sued for something that he shouldn't have been sued for, but still it's painful being sued. So I got my rageaholic father here, my alcoholic mother here. I got caught in the middle. This one night, mom was so drunk she couldn't prepare dinner. The hamburger could not be eaten. It was so overcooked and the lima beans were still frozen. They had not been prepared. And my dad was in a rage. Mom then went upstairs and, and, and passed out in the bedroom. My dad said, that's it, I'm moving out until uh, the, the, the lawsuit is over. Brad, you're in charge. Make sure she doesn't burn the house down. That wasn't rhetoric. She actually had, two weeks earlier, almost burnt the house down. So I said, Dad, I'm prepared to do that. I will stay here. I was living on the farm, but I'll come and I'll live in the house and look after Mom during the time. But I can't do it now. I'll be back. I have a youth group at 7 o'clock. I'll be back by about 8.45, and then I can look at her tonight and every other night. And Dad went ballistic. He started screaming and swearing at me, and he said, fine fine. You just go off with your little Christian friends and sing your little Christian songs and read about the Bible and the heck with your family and the heck with the people who've cared for you. My dad never said heck in his entire life. And he says, and you just have your wonderful little clown and who cares about the family? And what am I going to do? I mean, if I don't go, I fail there, but if I do go, I fail there. And finally, I said, okay, 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 I'll stay. So dad went off and packed, and he packed his bag and got in the car and drove away. It's 20 minutes till 7. I called Larry Sharpless. 
who's on sabbatical for that two-month period. And I told him, I said, Larry, he said, oh, his wife answered the phone and said, hi, we're just sitting down to dinner. I thought, great. I'm ruining his dinner, too. I told him, I said, I, it's a long story, I can't explain, but I, 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 I can't do youth group tonight. The shame of that was huge. I expected him to say, okay, I'll do it, but you owe me. A lot of people do emotional relationship in terms of IOUs. I expected that. And I said, okay, look, don't worry about it. I got this. Every good youth minister has a game and a teaching in their drawer. I got that. Uh, I can do this tonight. You stay there, look after your mom, and don't worry. I'm on top of it here. You be on top of it there. And then I, I couldn't talk. And then he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. And he said, well, what about lunch tomorrow? Can you do lunch? And I said, yes. And he set the time and the place. And he said, I got youth group. I got to go. I'll be praying for you. I'll see you then. Maybe that was the most loving thing anybody did for me in my entire life. No guilt no condemnation. I was a bent reed and a dimly burning week, and he loved me by his servanthood. And it was the servanthood of Jesus Christ. Christ was working in Larry, who was working to love me. And that's the church. I don't want us to be politically strong. I want us to be servanthood strong. And in our baptism, we are called to that kind of loving and that kind of servicehood, servanthood. And if we do that, we will be blessed and we will bless the whole world. And they will know that Jesus is Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.